Episode 136, Dr. Nicole Roberts, Executive Director of Feed a Billion. There's a real theme to my mistakes over time, but the one that really stood out to me is my favorite, uh, which by the way, I just love that concept. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For information and links to all of Nicole's work, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 136. Thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, And our guest today is Dr. Nicole Roberts. Um, she is the executive director of Feed a Billion. It's an international nonprofit that feeds girls around the world to help prevent exploitation. She's the founder of Health and Human Rights Strategies, a healthcare and human rights focused advising firm in Washington, D.C. And she's also the host of a podcast called The Global Good Podcast. So before I tell you, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more. I won't interrupt my own introduction by mistake. Um, she has a doctorate in public health from the University of North Carolina, a master's in public policy from the University of Chicago, and her undergraduate work was in psychology and biology at the University of Missouri. So with my false start, I'll throw it over to you, Nicole. Thank you for being here. How are you? Thank you. I feel like you know everything about me now. Well, I hope the listeners learn, <laughs> know a little bit about you. We're going to learn more about you and your organizations um, and all the things yeah. you're working on here today in the episode. Um, so as, as we always do, we'll, we'll kind of jump right in without a false start on my part. Um, Nicole, with uh, the different things you've done and are working on, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Uh, well, there are a lot. And uh, I've, as I thought through what we were going to talk about today, it occurred to me there's a real theme to my mistakes over time. But the one that really stood out to me is my favorite, uh, which, by the way, I just love that concept. Um, it starts in India. And yet it carries through to everything that I do today and that our organization does. Um, And essentially, it was assuming that a model we use would work other places. And for me, this was particularly embarrassing because as you, you read the bio, you know, my background was in neuroscience. And so because of that, I approach everything public health wise is through the lens of human behavior. How do people actually behave, right? We can't fix things. We can't solve things. We can't work together if we don't, you know, start from an honest point of how people behave. And so, you know, it was really embarrassing that I didn't even see this pivot coming. Like I was so focused and our organization was so focused on the big picture, saving the world, feeding girls, preventing exploitation, that we really, you know, missed a couple of local and cultural nuances, household behaviors, that when they registered, we just went, oh, no, (laughs) that was not what we intended. And we as an organization had to step back and our founder, you know, he gets all the credit saying like, 
that wasn't our intention. What are we going to do to fix it? And we did a complete rework, a rebrand. We engaged all new stakeholders and we came up, it took about a year, but we came up with an entirely new plan and it has literally changed both the course of Feed a Billion, but for me, it serves as that sort of, I don't know what you call it, like lighthouse kind of that's always there with me going, oh, I think we're going to do this and then this and then and also I'm like, yeah, don't forget. Remember that time <laughs> I lost <laughs> a year? Remember, you know, reflecting on, uh, remember that time we moved forward with something and we didn't stop and engage every single possible stakeholder? Um, and, you know, when you work internationally, like I said, there are so many examples where that's, you know, there's a similar sort of, of instance where you make an assumption and it's not relevant to a particular community or a group of people or a religion, whatever it is. And so you know, we face those things all the time. So, and what you describe is sort of that lighthouse moment or something that sticks with you. That's part of what I think makes it a favorite mistake. It, it, it stays there and, and continues providing the lessons that it sounds like you learned from, but oh, I want to hear a little bit more of the detail if you can. Was yeah. you talking about a model? Was this a model that you were bringing into India, and that's where the disconnects were then discovered? Or tell tell in us more way, about what that was. Yeah, in in a way, yes. So essentially, what it boils down to is the question: What is a meal? And our founder is actually from India, and so when we talk about what's a nutritious meal. We made a similar mistake. And essentially that was to us, it looked like a plate and it looked hot. And for, you know, we've now done a lot of going back and reflecting on how we got down this path. And, and, you know, those commonalities went across culture, a warm meal, hot roti, you know, whatever. It is. And so we thought, well, when we feed girls, we need to provide a hot meal or at least a full meal, a plate of food. And what we ended up learning is that in certain communities, and I try to never pass judgment on people's decisions because you never know what another family is going through, what they're dealing with and what parents in particular, what kinds of decisions they have to make on a day-to-day basis. But unfortunately, what we found is that in a lot of uh, one community in particular, Households, when they found out that we had provided a meal during the day to one of the girls, they would actually end up removing a meal from her and distributing that food amongst their other children or, you know, whatever. And so, as you can imagine, an organization that works with human trafficking organizations, child marriage organizations, you know, our purpose is to take one of the most difficult things a family has to deal with, which is providing food for their children. If we can, you know, take that pun intended off their plate, girls are more likely to stay in their homes with their families as opposed to be married or sent to go work. They're more likely to be sent to school, which we always try and put the food in the school, right? As an incentive, again, back to my my human behavior background, it's incentivizing parents to keep their girls with them and then send them to school. We say, hey, we we've got the meals for the day. But in that case, I mean, as you can imagine, we were devastated when we realized that by us providing a meal, girls were actually losing nutrition. 
And that is the opposite of what we were trying to accomplish. We wanted to be a complement, not a substitute. And so we had to step back and go, this is not, you know, our, our intent in any way. And in fact, we could be causing more harm than we, you know, or, or trying to fix at the same time. Yeah. And so um, that's why I said it really boiled down to the question of what is a meal? And once we really took a step back and got out of our own way of a hot plate, it's nutrition, right? I mean, think about children, even in the U.S. We're, we're actually a great example in the U.S. of You can fill your belly full of things and there's absolutely no nutritional value. In fact, you might be worse off than when you started depending on where the meal comes from. And so for us, it was about how do we, if we have the opportunity to touch a girl each day, where is the best place to meet her, right? Where she's already, where her family is already not going out of their way. We can't ask them to do that. So where do we meet that girl and what is it that she needs? And so from there, then all of a sudden, it was a completely different approach to engaging nutritionists and neuroscientists and saying, what's that optimal formula, combination, and how do we make it easy? And we ended up finding that um, you and I would think of it like a protein shake, but in a super easy, storable, whether it's rainy season, hot season, a, a packet it is just absolutely packed full of nutrients, fats, you know, all the things a girl needs to develop properly. Add water, shake it up, drink it. And we know that she's got her nutritional value met for the day. And then anything else really is just additive. And then the real human part of that equation is when a parent, family member, whatever, when they see a girl drink a drink, they don't think of it as a meal. Ah, and so I was they, wondering then how how does that, that, so that did address the substitution? And you know, the coolest part mm. is um, there's a partnership that Feed a Billion has with an organization called Yuwa in India, and it's a we say soccer, but a football mm. club. And we realize like that's the place. It's not even in the school building itself necessarily, because what's the one thing kids do no matter what? They play, they're kids. And in some place like India, you just need dirt, right? And a ball and kids will come running and they will play and we can distribute meals or shakes, you know, whatever you want to call them. The kids drink them, they love them, they're chocolate, they're vanilla. They drink, they, they go play. They've got the nutrients they need. They're in the location we want them. So they're more likely to stick around and go to class. Like it just, it led to this absolutely beautiful remodel. And it all started because we went, oh no, well, <laughs> this is the opposite of what we want. So how was that discovered? Did one of the girls say something and tell that story? If I heard that, I would, I would say sort of like I did here, like, wait, what? Did right. I hear and you right? And and it's hard for us to think of a parent making some of those decisions, right? At the same time, we also know when we look at numbers that indentured servitude, human trafficking, I mean, the numbers are just unfathomable, right? The tens of millions. And it, it just, for those of us who you know, haven't been in those situations, it seems impossible that 
someone would make those decisions about their own family or children. It happens every day all over, every zip code in the U.S., right? Um, And so in that case, we found out because of that, in this particular city and town, this one school in particular, uh, it was brought to our attention. And I don't know that when I first heard it, I really believed it either. Like, no, 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 they don't just take them equal. I mean, you don't just take, you don't just take food from children. It just, it really did not register with me. I don't, yeah, I think it took a couple of days to sink in and really, but again, we also had that, we're going to go help. We're going to, right. It just, it, yeah, it, it was really difficult to digest and process. And then we heard more and more that, oh, this was given to my brother or this was whatever. And, um, you know, those are vulnerable conversations that can only happen with people these girls trust and in their own community and in their own school. And so that's where I think the beauty of local partnership just, it cannot be overstated. It, we, we have no business, and I say this universally, we have no business going into anybody else's, any place and telling them how to do something. It, it's a full collaborative effort. And what, what you said there, we have no business going into any place that could repl- that could apply in workplaces because you see the psychology and, th- and this is something I've learned more about in recent years. Um, you know, the idea of what some would describe as pushback or resistance to change being a very natural and expected human reaction. If I tell you, to, if someone tells me to do something, I often find myself just with this sort of reflex, no, I don't, or no, or, you know, I want to do it my way, or I feel bad that I'm being told. Yeah, Um, it's very hard for your brain to process. So I I did want to ask you one question, and and this wasn't something we we prepared for, but I I can't help but think of, you seem like a great person to ask because of your background in public health and and, and brain science and and human behavior. We think of like, you know, well-intended actions, like, for example, um, vaccine mandates and trying to figure out how do we get more people to say yes to choosing a vaccine. And I've, I've, I've advocated for vaccination. I was, you know, got vaccinated and boosted as soon as I could, but I think sometimes in my own advocacy, I've probably said and done things that pushed people further away from saying yes. I'm curious. That's a, it's a very broad question. I realized, but I'm curious your thoughts on on navigating that. (laughs) And for people listening, uh, you couldn't just see my face, which was the moment he used the word vaccine. It was like pure terror. I was like, oh, no, well, we're going down this path. That's why I, uh, no, I, no, I, I thought perfect. maybe I shouldn't. But I, No, it's I, actually I, super fair. And uh, I've been on a couple of task forces here in D.C. So like literally since the right. beginning of the pandemic, this is something yeah. that I've had to continually I figured, think sure. about, deal with. And um pull my hair out. But, um, you know, I can tell you, first and foremost, I am probably in the same boat as you, right? Facts boosted, encouraged my family. Um, And yet, I think one of the most important things to understand about people is you will never convince someone to agree with you by telling them how stupid they are, 
or how wrong they are. Or even <laughs> not, not that you did that. Or no, but, but sometimes it's more implication. And that's it, it's implication. And because we ended up in a situation where something that never should have been politicized became the most political issue. And with politics, particularly in the U.S., we have this, in all my opinion, you know, from this one forward, um, we have this suboptimal system of two parties. And yes, it is the easiest for our brains to process. Yes, no, good, bad, black, white. This is my tribe or not. Exactly. We like simplicity. It takes no cognitive energy. It takes no thought. Um, and actually, we deal with this at Feed a Billion because I'm not asking people to do something really simple. What I'm asking them to do is think through the idea that by providing a basic human need, which is food, we can help prevent a slew of other poverty and cultural related issues that always end up harming girls. You have to think, right? It's not just A, B, yes, no, good, bad. It's like, You've got to apply steps in there of how things are done. And that the public part of public health (laughs) asks you inherently to think about big, complex things that involve billions of people, not just yourself, not just your immediate family. It's public. And, And so it inherently is hard. It's frustrating. Um, it taxes us. Our brain actually like heats up. It, it's working so hard, and we don't like that. And so the politicization of all this—it was just easy. It was so much easier. And we, I would say, collectively, we fell right into the trap. And politics makes it easy because there are two parties. You pick one, right? And you can try and talk about that nuance in the middle, and people just shut down or they run to their respective tribe or corner because it's easier. And so um, getting to your question, I think ultimately the area where we, I say we collectively as Americans, starting from the White House to the CDC to, you know, on and on, we failed at communicating something that people don't understand often about science or they do, but they don't, I don't think, think about it a lot is for those of us who work in science, things are always supposed to evolve. Every new piece of information should equal a new outcome or result, an updated finding. You should never enter new information and go exactly the same, right? Right, right. As there's new data, as there's new understanding, changing a recommendation is not flip-flopping per se. It's science, it's learning, it's progress. Exactly. And yet it's been constantly viewed as, oh, they don't know or they lied, mm-hmm. or they're flip-flopping, mm-hmm. or, and whoever they is, and it's gone on both sides of it. When in reality, it's that the answer has evolved, and it's constantly evolving, and that is hard, especially two years in. And so, you know, do the vaccinations work? Yes, they do. I mean, we've seen, particularly with the latest variant, you know, people who are vaccine-boosted are less sick. They take up less space in the hospital. There's miscommunication or lack of communication around what work means. Like it doesn't prevent every single infection, 
But even now they're saying with Omicron, as we're recording this on January 21st, it's preventing a lot of major illnesses and hospitalizations and ICU stays and deaths. So it also depends on your definition of work, right? What's happening in hospitals? What's happening in the broader picture? What's happening with the economy? What's happening, right? So the definition of are they working? Very good point on you. And that's exactly one of those cases where you use a word and the next thing you know, depending on the good or bad intent of the medium, the audience, it can be taken a hundred different ways. And, you know, it's freedom of speech, freedom of press, and, and God bless us for having <laughs> having that. But it does inherently mean that a sentence just, that was a perfect example. You knew my intent, and yet it could have been put in a soundbite a hundred different ways to prove a hundred different points. Right. Or to prove and, that you were uh, quote unquote wrong. She was wrong. And well, no, exactly. there's more, there's more to yeah, it. Yeah. It's, it's so tough. So, you know, I think the best communicators are local back to what we were saying earlier. In fact, um, without naming names, I'll just quickly give one example. Um, and that is when the very first uh, vaccines before we got into the mandate issue and all the, you know, where I will, I will not wait in on my opinion. But um, the, the first, you know, when the vaccine started coming out, we found on one of these task forces I'm on that um, you could use the celebrity and there were certain celebrities that the moment they showed I'm getting one, right? You'd see it, an uptick in a certain demographic or population. And then it just sort of flattened. Where the needle moved, I guess pun intended, uh, is the local, and I hate using the word influencer because I think it kind of means something different these days. But um, like Louisiana is a great example. When the LSU football coach said, we're going to vax, the numbers in Louisiana went up. Mm -hmm. The entire football team, I think, with the exception of two guys or three players, whatever, got vaxxed. Like, the local car salesman was an epically powerful voice because it's, you know, and I'm stereotyping, but a good old boy, you've heard him on the radio for years, Mm -hmm. you've seen his picture on the billboards for decades, right? The moment he is like, hey, I'm doing this, we should do this, this is community, we're in it together, the numbers moved. And yet you could have any talking head at an agency or a celebrity, and there would be maybe a blip and then nothing. Those local trusted voices those are the ones that matter. Whether we're talking about feeding kids in India or getting people to vax, those are the voices that matter. Yeah, and 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 one thing I think is relevant to to this topic you said earlier was the idea of not passing judgment, and and that's something I at times I will admit to struggling with. But I, I, I just share one quick example of a one-on-one conversation with a friend who I would describe as vaccine hesitant, not as resistant at the time. She had not gotten vaccinated yet. And we had an opportunity to talk. And I, and I didn't pass judgment. I, I didn't cut her off for like, she said her things and she had a reason to be uncertain. And then she stated something that I seemed to be factually incorrect. And I didn't say, hey, you're wrong. I shared my experience. I got vaccinated. I had some mild side effects and then it was fine. And I I had a con- I wasn't trying to convince her. I, 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 that wasn't on my mind. But then I heard through a friend a couple of days later, she decided to go get vaccinated. 
And so I'm not saying it was only my interaction with her, but I think I can take credit for not pushing her further from the decision sure. to get vaccinated. Yeah. And that was a very local. Exactly right. Thing. And I think, again, to that sort of going back to that local influencer, there is no one more local than our friend pool and then our family. And um, to your point, I mean, I, I can use my family as an example. I have a very big family. My grandparents had a lot of kids. They're half and half, literally split down the middle. They all live in one town. In fact, I'm the only person on that side of the family that does not live in the same town. Half are vaxxed and boosted. The other half, a couple of them, I think, still are in the it's a hoax category. Like there's no getting them on board. Um, And yet they all just kind of roll their eyes at the other, but then they move on. Like they, it, they were together Christmas, New Year, right? Like they, and they do family gatherings and they've just reached a point and I'm both very proud of them. And I'm like, what is going on? This is the weird. It's <laughs> hard. So yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard and it's complex, but I am very proud that they've, you know, put family first and just agreed to disagree. But mm-hmm. um, there for a while, it was very, very contentious um and it's a shame and there are people that i think are very much at fault for politicizing these things and it's to the detriment of all of us whether you are hesitant or not and anytime something is new i think hesitancy is not only welcome but a very honest totally relevant feeling i mean that you know i have no problem with hesitancy in fact, we should all be a little hesitant, right? The moment someone says, hey, I have a new thing. It'll mm-hmm. work. Stop and ask questions. Sure. But this far in, this much mm-hmm. data, this many mm-hmm. prevented cases, better cases, healthy babies, on and on. Um, the mis and disinformation is really troubling and really malintent, I think, at this yeah. point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for for rolling with that question and that topic. I love it. So you talk about big, complex issues and and the big, complex issue that we really planned on talking about that doesn't affect quite as many people, but does affect a lot of people is um, safety in we'll we'll, we'll talk American football now. And um, really want to have you share with us um, about an event, something that's become an annual event, I believe um, the ninth year, um, an event being held Super Bowl week called the Brain Health Summit. Um, t- tell us about that event. Why, why you got involved in that? Sure. Um, and it has so many parallels unintentionally to the things we <laughs> just oh, okay. talked well, about, which well, I hadn't, yeah. you know, I hadn't yeah. agreed with. Yeah. Um, but it gets back to, so for me, uh, the, I guess the quick backtrack is because this is the ninth annual. I know it was 10 years ago, about a decade ago, I was, um, first time I think we met was at the UN on World Brain Day, but I met Lee Steinberg, who's an agent. He's um, considered, the re- they call him the real Jerry Maguire. He's sort of uh, the model <laughs> yep. for that movie. He's famous in the sports agent world. Yeah. 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 He's done, he's done some things. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think the most number one draft picks and the most, you know, whatever. he's he's, he's a household name. If you're a big sports fan, that's how big yes. he is. In yes. his field. Well, I didn't know who he was. I just thought yeah. he was this fabulous guy. And we <laughs> chatted and we chatted and um, I joked and said, oh, you're my spirit animal. Come to find out we have the same birthday. And it sounds silly, but like mm-hmm. our entire trusting relationship became built on 
<laughs> our shared network of people that we liked. And then we we're like, we have the same birthday. We clearly get along. <laughs> um, and he, but he asked a very important question. And he said, you know, back in the eighties, I think it was 1983, sort of wearing that Jerry Maguire hat. He wrote um, a paper, a manifesto of sorts on concussions. And he, he calls it his crisis of conscience. And he's, says, you know, I have guys who have won the Super Bowl and they don't remember being in the host city. There is something going on. And we, you know, we care about our clients. They're humans. They're our friends. Like it is on us to take responsibility and figure out what's happening. Well, you can imagine how well that went over. And he brought this up to me and I said, oh, I had no idea <laughs> because of our age difference. I was like, you know, I couldn't read when that came out. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I missed it. And he just said, I'd love to get back to, because he had already been hosting some things. And he said, I'd love to get back to really putting a brain health focus and spin on, on our work. He happens to host what may be the longest, if not one of the, you know, one of the longest running events at the Super Bowl. And it's his annual party. It's a day party on Saturday. And he literally, from just kindness, no contract, no money, just he just basically said, hey, why don't you use my party to do good? And so we crafted this Brain Health Summit. And as you said, this is the ninth annual. The first couple, they went well in terms of an event. But I, I can tell you being the sort of face and spokesperson for let's talk about brain injury and concussion. Oh, goodness. Um, getting back to sort of the theme of, you know, this episode yeah. for me of making assumptions. Right. <laughs> I right. assumed, <laughs> which yeah. we all know, you know, assumptions make asses <laughs> out of you and me. I assumed, well, we've got 30, 40 years of data. It shows what's going on here. These repeated sub you know, mild concussive, whatever words you want to use in there and all the different definitions. We know repeated injuries very bad. We've seen autopsies. We know CTE is real. And so in my mind, I thought, well, yeah, like any good fan, any good owner, coach wants to improve the game. Games evolve. We don't play basketball with, you know, little baskets anymore. We, <laughs> things evolve. And, um, oh, I was wrong. I was so wrong. Yeah, those first couple of years were I would actually say hostile. Um, well, I imagine there might be some people, a small percentage who you earlier used the word hoax. There might be some people say, oh, this CTE thing is a hoax. It's overblown. People are just trying to sue, blah, 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 blah. There was some of that. There was definitely some of that. I think for me, the more disappointing aspect was the number of people who it became very clear to me. And a lot of players would have already told you this, but they are viewed as commodities. You buy, you sell, you trade. They're entertainment. They're not people. They're not humans. They're not you're someone you have feelings about and care about. Or you go, oh, that's too bad. Or, oh, you. these are humans. And if we want them to perform, we have to take care of the whole person, the human being. It's just, it put us in this position where I was... I was really disappointed and shocked at how little these people in particular who claim to be such fans cared about the actual people. 
um, it, it was very, my brain didn't know how to process it, to, right. to be honest. Even now, yeah. I'm like I'm struggling to find the words. Um, well, I, I've, I've tried to process this as a fan. I've never put on a football helmet to play a game of anything beyond touch football. But I, it's hard. Like what used to, you would see highlights and, and they would do this on um, ESPN and other shows that you, you would cheer the, the brutal hit. Yeah. yeah. What a great hit. He took his head off. Right. And, and we're now like violence. we're human now, beings. I mean, we used to be gladiators, right? We used to, yeah. we used to put people in the pit and have them fight sure. it. Like, humans love violence. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but now seeing that is there's a cringe factor and I'm like, it's not to the point where I say like, I can't watch that anymore. Right. I can't support that, but I, I'm, I'm conflicted about it. Sure. And I think that's the right place to be. I mean, I'm biased, but I think that's exactly the right place to be. I love football. I obviously now after doing this for almost a decade, I work with so many chapter presidents when I trying to answer questions and help and advocate. Um, you're on Capitol Hill, the same thing. Um, and it gets back to the word I said earlier, which is everything evolves. Sport evolves. We don't need to literally cause people brain damage to enjoy ourselves. Football can be collision oriented, violent. It, it doesn't have to involve your brain just rattling around in your skull. And when people say things like helmets, the example I always use is, um, well, like this glass, right? I can put a koozie on it. And if I drop it, the glass doesn't break. Your skull doesn't break because you have a helmet on. Awesome. That's actually a good thing, right? It doesn't mean anything about the water inside sloshing mm. around. The koozie doesn't protect that. Your brain just rattles around. It gets bruised. It gets injured. It gets hurt. We know that. It's not hard. Um, and so, you know, this summit, now that we've talked about this tough stuff, yeah. I think what's so this amazing about too. it yeah. and the real pivot that happened with this was, um, and I don't even think it was a great movie, but when the movie Concussion came out, I can tell you, you know, talk to, about this power of storytelling it was like a night and day. The next Super Bowl, when I did radio and media row, I had all these people go, so that's a thing, huh? And they all ended it with the word, huh? Like, it was so funny to me. So like brain injury is a thing, huh? That's real, huh? Interesting. That's <laughs> Where have you yeah. been for 30 years? But yeah. what it did is it opened up this world where we can use a party full of celebrities, red carpet, on and on and on. And we can talk about real stuff. So like this year in LA, because it's LA, I want to be very, you know, cognizant of host city. We're talking about resilience. And I think through the pandemic, it's important that we talk about you know, what does it take to be resilient? It's a skill. How do you learn it? How do you hone that? How do you persevere? Athletes are a wonderful wealth of knowledge when it comes to resilience and perseverance. And also um, to a nod to LA, it's storytelling. What role does your Netflix, your Hollywood, what role and responsibility do they have in telling the stories that are important? Because, I mean, I gave the concussion example, but even in, um, I would I will use Netflix, you see young people, minorities, talking about their mental health, their wellness. Those are not conversations we were having 10 years ago. And now they're front and center. And that's because someone chose to put them there. 
And it completely changes how we engage with our own family, with our friends. And so I think the conversation in LA's can be really fun. I have a neuroscientist, a producer, obviously a, an athlete. I've got um, the first female coach from in the NFL. Uh, Jen Walter. Jen, yeah. Jen, she, Jen she's, been, she's, she's been a guest on this podcast. I did not know that. <laughs> and so Jen, A, yeah. she's resilient. But B, she's got yeah. a PhD in psychology. And right. C, she sees the league and the other a, A7FL, CFL. She sees all the different leagues and approaches from a coaching perspective, from a PhD in psychology perspective. And so having like a voice on the panel about those things, about like, look, here's something you got to understand about these guys. When they're injured, they look around and see 200 guys ready to take their place. They're going back out there. That's who they right. are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How do we also deal with that? How do we protect you from yourself? Sometimes? Right. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You can see, sorry, that was a long answer, but no, you that's can right. see that Lee giving us this platform of important, powerful, fun, glitzy, you know, space and people to embed these conversations is just, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. And we have gotten, I'd say the last six years in particular, like the response has just been awesome. Just the request to come, to be a part, universities mm-hmm. want to submit things. This year, we're going to have three actual brains. At a Super Bowl party, which is just so yeah. weird, but they're going to in be a jar in that liquid. Yeah, they're going to yeah. be on. You see, Irvine is bringing brains mm-hmm. for people to see and touch and play with because I very much believe you can wow. have cocktails and take a picture with a, a celebrity. You can also, at the same time, learn something and become more informed and an advocate. You can do all of that at once, and and Lee is. I mean, he gets all the credit for saying, let's do this. And then supporting it, even in those years when it wasn't getting traction, we're getting a lot of attention. Um, That's great. It's, it's been awesome. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, I mean, you know, somebody as powerful as Lee Steinberg is in that sport and, um, you know, between that paper and then these other things, like a lot of times somebody who speaks truth to power or brings up uncomfortable things gets ostracized, maybe he's too powerful to be ostracized. And that gives an opportunity then for these issues to have some space and discussion. Maybe. Um, I would think my take from it is a, a little different. I think there is the power dynamic. Of course, you look back at his clientele and his reach um, and influence is pretty great. But, you know, he also went through his own struggles. He's been I think 11 years sober. And so, you know, when he was in sort of the darker days of alcoholism, he also could have easily been pushed to the side or ostracized. And what I think it really speaks to is his authenticity, that he's not afraid to talk about the hard things. He's not afraid to talk about recovery and addiction, which I also think is part of him saying, oh, you want to talk about mental health in this setting? Let's do that. Let's have an honest conversation about it. He's not afraid to do that. But I think when he does it, there's nothing that's insincere. And everyone knows that from if they knew him way back, you know, like with his first clients through present, I think the last 30, 40 years, 
Um, I've never met a person, even people who wives and mothers of players from like 40 years ago, if they hear that I know either of these, oh, tell him hi. He is so kind. Mm-hmm. He, he, we, we couldn't have done this without him. He gave this. I think the other thing he does that's different, I don't know if I should probably say this, but there's a lot of other agents who, after this brain summit took off, I've heard from. And their approach is, hey, I'd really like my client to get involved in your this or that. They could use the PR. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, that's pretty direct. <laughs> There's no care or thoughtfulness of, hey, I care about my players. I want the best for this whole person. This person's been through some stuff or they've experienced this. I think it'd be a good thing for us to share and to advocate. It's always oh, hey, like mental health is like a thing now. Like we need to check that, you know, box. I got somebody who could do that. Could you get him some attention? And there's nothing like that when it comes to Lee. He very much has always been, and I haven't heard him say it to parents as well. Like if you want me, he is Patrick Mahomes right now, right? He's got, he's, well, he's had Patrick since Patrick was drafted. And it's like, if you want your son to be Patrick, you need a whole person who's smart, who's attentive, who's focused, who's, you know, he is the whole package. He really is. He's a wonderful person. He cares. I mean, one of the first things he did was start his nonprofit, his organization. I know even at the Super Bowl, they're going to be doing things with Oakley of providing free vision care and glasses to children throughout LA. Those sorts of activities some people do them to check a box. Others put forth real intention of like, how do I give back? How do I help? How do I, and those are the kinds of clients that Lee likes and goes for because he really does think about the whole person. You can't expect yeah. someone to be their best out on the field if, if they're not whole in their head and in their heart. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great to hear. And, and, and for, for listeners who um, maybe didn't hear her episode, which was great, Jen Walter, um, who Nicole mentioned as the first woman to be an assistant coach for an NFL team. She was my guest in episode 60. And then um, it happened to be the episode right before that episode 59 was uh, a retired hockey player who had played many years in the NHL, Dave Scatcher. Mm-hmm. And the, the the issue of brain injuries and um, all of this is um, not just limited um, to football. No. And, you know, there are players, when you talk about Lee Steinberg's story, there's an intersection of these issues where players self-medicate with drugs yes. or alcohol. That is an issue that is, uh, in my opinion, wholly unaddressed. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And it starts as early as middle school, high school. Kids have access to so many things now. And they have do what we were just saying about you know, using like Patrick as an example. Parents also push, right? They think you've got to be in this, in this, on this, with that, involved, and in, and they push and push and push. And and you know our brains aren't fully developed till we're in our twenties. Our muscles, our joints. I mean, even in baseball, <laughs> an example I sometimes use um, when talking about the helmet to helmet contact in practice. That a lot of parents we see like those. Friday night tyke shows and whatever, which are just appalling and child abuse in my opinion. But we even have pitch counts starting 
in little league because we don't want a kid to hurt their shoulder knowing if they hurt their shoulder when they're young it'll affect the rest of their life and their career and they won't have a career we have no hit counts we have no helmet rules about number right? other than the guidance to not play tackle football until you reach a certain age as some advocate right. for and even then you've got the ivy leagues that have been trying all kinds of things the ivies i could be wrong but i think a couple of years ago uh, the Ivies moved to a no um, no contact or certain contact mm-hmm. in practice. Yeah. And yeah. What they learned is essentially their records didn't change, their performance didn't change, because it's all about the learning of the motions, the proper techniques, the practicing, the actual running into each other. You can do it full out in games. You don't actually have to practice that. Because that's not the technique you're practicing. You're not practicing the banging of your skulls. You're practicing. Right. And you don't, your brain doesn't get more resilient. Movement. Your brain doesn't get more resilient from no. more contact. You're not. No, training it doesn't it. actually. It doesn't it's not like a muscle that you're building through repetition. No. Exactly. Yeah. I just, yeah, I always thought it was so interesting that we have um, pitch counts for shoulders mm-hmm. starting when kids are like 10. And then we let people go into their 30s and 40s, banging their heads against the equivalent of a brick wall and never stop to think, huh, maybe we shouldn't do that. Well, and, and a, a parallel might be, let's say, in NASCAR, drivers are not intentionally thrown into a brick wall to, quote unquote, practice for being in a crash, as dangerous no. as there's not the techniques right. for yeah. if this happens, here's how you roll. Here's how you right. Exactly. No, every sport, I mean, cheerleading, tons of brain injury and cheerleading from, from drops and um, tumbling. No, it's not just football. And, and so I never intend um, to pick on football. It just so happens we have, we have a platform that is the Super Bowl to have this conversation, but you're exactly right. It is, it exists everywhere and it exists in car accidents. It exists, you know, in motorcycle accidents, falls. I mean, look at our elderly population, the TBI rates in, because we're living longer, have skyrocketed in the elderly. Um, What it really speaks to is our need to think about brains as part of the body, right? They are our health, our brain. Like, and so why we call it mental health and then literally every other thing on our body is health (laughs) makes no sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a whole different show. All right. Well, (laughs) I, I mean, this, this has been very interesting, Nicole. We we've done a couple of, I think really good shows within a show um, between your favorite mistake story and your reflections and, and feed a billion. The website there is feed a billion dot org. Um, the, the, your firm health and human rights strategies, where can people learn um, about that work online? Yeah. Um, HHRstrategies.com. We, um, that, that's sort of the main host for the podcast, but the podcast also has its own website, the global good podcast.com. And uh, essentially what that is, is taking, um, I decided that, you know, most of us want to do good. We just don't know how we don't know where to start. And through my work all over the world, I've met people who are just doing remarkable work. And most of them get no credit for it because they're too busy doing the good work. And so I try a couple times a month to sound with someone somewhere in the world. So I'll 
honestly, it's kind of like a travel show. We sort of like end up in a different spot on the map. And we talk to someone who's just doing something mind-blowing. Our next episode, we're actually going underwater. That's the director of NEMO, which is the opposite of our NASA program. We have a NEMO program underwater. So we're... uh, You're not doing the interview in scuba suits. I took that too literally. I think he... Oh. (laughs) He's he's Irish and he's... Oh, my God. He's the funniest guy. He he curses like a sailor. But So it'll be an interesting episode. But um, if he's underwater next week working, then yeah, like in his pod, we'll, we'll literally be doing it underwater. So we literally just go all over the world talking to people who are doing good. And, and I try and provide all the resources I can for how to get involved and help and um, do it in your local community, whatever it is. Um, yeah. So uh, certainly go check out feedabillion.org and the globalgoodpodcast.com. I'm easy to find. So send me an email if you have a good story you want to tell or a mistake you want to share. I still have a lot to learn. <laughs> we all we all do. Um, so again, I want to thank our guest, um, Dr. Nicole Roberts. Um, I'll put a link to your know, LinkedIn profile in um, the show notes for people who want to um, maybe reach out and contact you. And just to wrap up here, I'm going to read something I copied and pasted and I didn't, it's either from your website or from another interview with you. So I'm going to just read this because I, I thought this was amazing and it, it fits right in with the podcast. You look scared. Don't be scared. Yeah, no, <laughs> I know what you're going to say. Okay. Here's the quote. If you aren't making mistakes, then it means you aren't paying enough attention or you aren't listening to the people around you. Yeah, I said that. Yeah. And that's brilliant. Thank you. So, well, very, you, you're the one that has a show about it, which I think is absolutely brilliant. So thank you. Well, and thank you for being here, Nicole. Again, for links and more information about all of Nicole's work, Look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 136. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.